Hello, I'm Tommy Peeler, and this is Carefully Examining the Text. Today on our program, we're going to go over Psalm 2. Thank you for listening and being a part of this broadcast. Psalm 2 is generally classed as a royal psalm. And in this psalm, the human king plays a key role. This chapter, this psalm, can be divided into four parts of three verses each. The first three verses say, Why are the nations in an uproar, and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed. Let us tear their fetters apart. Let us cast their bonds asunder. Why this psalm begins? Why? Those words, that word, opens Psalm 10 and Psalm 22. But I would suggest the setting for those psalms is much different. The writer is looking at the situation in the world and is overwhelmed with his problems, and he is asking God why. In this particular psalm, it is not because of the psalmist's problems that he is asking why. It is because of man's man's insane hostility against God. He's asking this question, why? are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing. Why is this happening? The most powerful men on earth in Psalm 2, verse 2, the kings of the earth and the rulers, they are combining their efforts and they are merging together their power to oppose the God who created all things. You notice in Psalm 2 and verse 1, the word devising in the New American Standard Bible. It is the same word translated meditates in Psalm 1 and verse 2. In Psalm 1, the righteous man was using his middle energy to meditate on God's Word. But in Psalm 2, verse 1, the kings of the earth and the rulers are meditating on, planning, devising rebellion against God. But even though these are the most powerful men on earth, they are fighting with a foe who cannot be defeated. They are fighting against the Lord and His anointed, His Messiah, His Christ. And they are stating, let us tear their fetters apart. Let us burst their bonds asunder. These particular words are sometimes used for subjection to an oppressive power. And the idea is that these nations view God and His rule and His reign as oppressive, something beyond their ability to bear. Sometimes, when we try to cast off God's gracious reign, we will find out just what slavery really is. The nations are wanting to cast off God's reign feeling as if they've been imprisoned 
and bounded. Let us tear their fetters apart. Let us break their bonds asunder. But in verses 4 through 6, the focus now is not on the nations in the rebellion, but about the God against whom they rebel. The text says, He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury. But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. The God who sits in the heavens laughs. Often in the book of Psalms, God is pictured at laughing at those who dare think they can oppose him. You see this in Psalm 37, verse 13, Psalm 59, verse 8. It's not as if the rebellion of the nations is a laughing matter, but it is to say that God laughs and scoffs at them because he knows their rebellion is no threat to his rule. Their rebellion does not put his throne in jeopardy. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. And when he speaks to the nations in his anger, these nations are terrified. These nations, which are boldly plotting rebellion, are terrified at the voice of God. And God says in verse 6, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. Quite frequently, the Psalms speak of God's holy mountain, God's holy hill, the place where God's temple would dwell. You see in Psalm 3 in verse 5 a reference to this. Uh, Psalm 3 Excuse me, Psalm 3 and verse 4. He answered me from his holy mountain. God's reign is demonstrated through the city of Jerusalem as he has installed his king on Zion, his holy mountain. Whatever the nations may do in rebellion against him, God still installs his king upon Zion. And in verses 7 through 9, this king is the focus of attention. The text says, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and you shall shatter them like earthenware. I will tell of the decree of the Lord. The Lord said to me, You are my son. The relationship between God and the king of Israel is often described as a father-son relationship. In God's promises to David in 2 Samuel seven fourteen, he said, I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. In Psalm 89, verses 26 and 27, 
the king is described as God's firstborn, God's son. So the relationship between the king and God is described in terms of this father-son relationship. And God decrees of this king he has installed on Zion, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. He encourages the king. God encourages the king. Ask of me, and I will give the nations as your inheritance, and the ends of the earth as your possession. It is interesting that these very nations which were plotting rebellion against God in verse 1 are now being given to the king as an inheritance. All of them are the king's possession. Because God rules the earth, God can give them to whomever he will, and he will give them to the king from David's line. The Bible says the very ends of the earth are your possession. And God's power and God's glory over these nations is going to be displayed in an effortless way as the king is said to break these nations with a rod of iron to shatter them like earthenware, to break the nations with a rod of iron, a fragile piece of pottery which is easily destroyed by an iron rod. That is how the nations are viewed in their opposition to God and to God's people. So in Psalm 2, in verses 10 through 12, the nations are called to the only, the only option that they reasonably have. The only reasonable option they have is surrender. Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. The kings, the judges, who were rebelling against God, who were combining their energy to overthrow God's rule and to break free of his oppression, are called to show discernment. Take warning. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. I find verse 11 very fascinating because it can mention reverence and awe in worship. At the same time, it mentions rejoicing. There is a place in our worship for reverence, for trembling, and there is a place for rejoicing. There is a place for these things to be combined in our service of God. We are overjoyed at His presence. We are in awe of His person, and we dare not offend Him. We rejoice with trembling. And verse 12 says to do homage to the Son, or to kiss the Son, that He may not become angry. You remember that Elijah was told there were 7,000 knees that have not bowed to Baal nor kissed him in 1 Kings 19 and verse 18. In Hosea 13 verse 2, kissing seems to be a special mark of devotion to an idol, to a god. But now these nations are called to kiss 
the sun. There are several passages that describe kissing the ground underneath the feet of God's king. For example, Psalm 72 Verse 9 uses such language. Kiss the Son, do homage to the Son, that he may not become angry, and that you perish in the way. His wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. We pointed out that the word blessed, which ends Psalm 2, opens Psalm 1. And so, to some degree, these psalms belong together. In verse 2, or verse 12 of Psalm 2, we are also told, the nations are told, to do homage to the Son, lest he become angry and perish. But in Psalm 1, verse 6, we're told the way of the wicked will perish. Again, a verbal connection or vocabulary connection between Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. Psalm 2, verses 1 through 3, the nations are plotting rebellion. In Psalm 2, verses 4 through 6, the Lord sits in the heavens and laughs. He scoffs at these people who think they can defy him and escape unpunished. In Psalm 2, verses 7 through 9, the text emphasizes that the king is told that he is God's son and that the nations are his for the asking. And verses 10 through 12 advise the nations to surrender to the son, to do homage to him. Now let me ask you a question in particular focusing on this section from verses 7 through 9. At what point in Israel's history did they exercise the kind of dominion that's described in Psalm 2, verses 7 through 9? When did they exercise the kind of dominion that they, the nations were theirs, the ends of the earth, were their possessions? The answer is never. Israelite kings were never the dominant world rulers. That wasn't true in the days of David. It wasn't true in the days of Solomon. In the days of David, in the days of Solomon... Israel controlled as much land, as much territory as they would at any time in their history. But they were never what the Assyrian kings were in the days of Tiglath-Pileser. They were not what the Babylonian kings were in the days of Nebuchadnezzar. And they weren't what the Persian kings were in the days of Cyrus the Great. Isn't it interesting that this psalm remained even though Israelite kings never exercised that kind of dominion. It was a reminder to them that whatever is going on in the nations, in whatever rebellion they are plotting and planning, whatever it is, God still rules and God is over all. But did God's promises to these kings fail? When you look at verses 7 through 9, it might be easy to think that 
originally. But because these promises were not fulfilled in the historical kings of Israel and Judah that led the Jewish people to expect a king who was coming, an anointed one, a Messiah, a Christ, who would fulfill all these promises, who would have the ends of the earth as his possession. It is fascinating that Psalm 2 is quoted quite frequently in the New Testament. Remember when Jesus was baptized and the Bible says there was a voice from heaven and the Spirit was descending as a dove and the voice says, This is my Son or my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Part of that is a quote from Psalm 2-7. That's Matthew 3, verses 16 and 17, Mark 1, verses 9-11, and Luke 3, verses 21 and 22. Those are the passages that record Jesus' baptism. But it quotes Psalm 2. You are my Son. This is also quoted at the Transfiguration in Matthew 17, in verse 5, and Mark 9, verse 5, and in Luke 9, verses 32 and 33. These words, you are my son, were fulfilled in a greater way in Jesus than they were in the kings from David's line. Hebrews 1, 5, quote Psalm 2, 7. Hebrews 5, 5, quote Psalm 2, 7, and speaks of them as being fulfilled in Jesus. Acts 13, verse 33, quotes Psalm 2, verse 7, and speaks of it being fulfilled in the resurrection of Jesus. While the kings of Israel and Judah never attained the power and prominence that this psalm speaks of, Jesus as king did. And Jesus said, as he ascended to heaven in Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20, that all authority has been given to me in heaven and in earth. All the nations are his possession. He had asked of the Father, and the very ends of the earth were given to him. And he is to rule all nations with the rod of iron, Psalm 2, verse 9. In Revelation 12, verse 5, we read of the birth of a man-child who is destined to rule all nations with a rod of iron. Revelation 19, verse 15, uses this and applies it to Jesus as well. In Revelation 2, 26 and 27, it is interesting that those who are in Christ are to rule all nations with a rod of iron. Whatever king prevails, the people who serve that king prevail. If Jesus is king and Jesus rules all, all who follow him prevail. All who follow them will be victorious in our world. While this passage left a longing in the Jewish heart because they didn't see it fulfilled in their kings, in their day, 
it created a desire to see the days of the Messiah who would rule all nations. Jesus is ruling all nations. But I will say this, when he comes back, that rule will become more obvious and more clear. And the text tells us that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Philippians 2, verses 9 through 11. He is king now, but his kingdom will be realized by all in that day. And the Bible tells us the last enemy, death, will be defeated, and he will deliver up all rule to God. Jesus is king Jesus' kingdom is going to be demonstrated and manifest more clearly when he returns the second time. And all of us who are his followers will share in that victory. Are you a follower of this king, Jesus? May God bless you.